Welcome to EcoAlarm, the podcast where we break down the major factors affecting the environment and explore what we can do to help. I'm your host, Bo. And I'm your host, Imani. And today we'll be talking to Raina, who actually works on our podcast doing marketing. If you see our trailers on Instagram, that is her. But today we'll be talking about her research project, looking at the connection between the likelihood of sharing misinformation on social media and factors such as environmental knowledge and political affiliation. We're really excited to dig into this project, uh, talking about how she got started and how's it going now. So we're here with our guest, Rhina. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. So you are our marketing extraordinaire on the podcast, but today you're here to talk a bit about your research. But um, for the audience that doesn't know you, if you could just give us a brief introduction. Uh, my name is Bryna. Um, I'm a senior at USC. I'm double majoring in psychology and environmental studies. Um, and I'm currently uh, doing research under Dr. Joe Arvai, who's the director of the Wrigley Institute for Environmental Studies. Um, and he runs a psych lab here on campus called the Judgment and Decision-Making Lab. Um, and so I'm currently doing research under the guidance of a PhD student, Lauren Litsky in the Judgment Decision-Making Lab. Cool. So obviously we're here to talk about the research project. Uh, I think it would be helpful if you could give us a brief description, just high level overview. Yeah, so I'm currently working on a secondary data analysis that's uh, looking at misinformation dissemination on Facebook. Specifically, we're looking at people's likelihood to trust, like, and share climate change misinformation. And the predictor variables that we're working with are belief versus doubt in climate change, domain-specific knowledge about climate change, education level, and political affiliation. And we found that political affiliation seems to be the most significant predictor for people's likelihood to trust, like, and share fake news. I guess if you could walk us through how did you go about measuring each of those factors and was political affiliation the only significant one or were there others? Yeah, so the significance sort of was uh, varied throughout the different analyses that we looked at, but overall political affiliation was the most like consistent. And the measurement process was done using a Qualtrics survey that was sent out to over a thousand participants. And for belief versus doubt in climate change, education level and political affiliation, those were all self-reported measurements. So what that means is that participants could say, I am a liberal, I'm a moderate. Yes, I believe in climate change. And they would just say that. And that was how that measurement was taken. For domain-specific climate knowledge, this was done using a questionnaire. So participants were shown statements or asked questions. Um, For example, burning oil produces CO2, and participants could answer true, false, or unsure. And then using their answers to these prompts or questions, they were given an overall knowledge score. Cool. So they're given an overall knowledge score, and then... How did we go about measuring then if they were willing to post on social media? Like, did you look at the actual postings or was it done a different way? So for this study, we didn't look at actual social media feeds. 
that actually use like real Facebook data. Um, that's not what, what was done for this one. Um, we showed participants screenshots of different climate change related posts that are seen on Facebook. Um, so for fake news posts, we found things from like Infowars and Breitbart, you know, these well-known uh, misinformation propagating sources. Um, and then for real news, we found sources from like NASA and Scientific American. So we just took screenshots of like actual uh, Facebook posts and participants would self-report their likelihood to trust like and share each of these sources. So they, they didn't actually post anything. They didn't actually like anything. Um, they just said what they would do if they saw this on social media. Yeah, so you mentioned that um, the results are pretty clear that political affiliation is, a, is the most, uh, it's the strongest predictor for, for the study. And um, I was just curious for next steps, uh, you mentioned you're writing a research paper on this analysis. Are there any recommendations or are there um, so, sort of like, where is the team taking the analysis results in the paper? Well, we're, we're, we are looking to get the research paper published, hopefully, at early 2023. The PhD student that I'm working under, Lauren Lutsky, she's actually going to be graduating soon. So um, once that happens, this project is going to be terminated. Me and her are going to be graduating within the same school year. But Dr. Arvai has a few other grad students and is doing other stuff with like at the intersection of psychology and environmental studies. I'm also curious too, were there any other findings that were surprising or things you didn't see coming? Did you see the political affiliation being the top spot or were people kind of surprised by that result? Looking at other previous studies on like misinformation, um, there is sort of this divide uh, between what is the driver of people spreading misinformation. So there's one sort of body of research that's saying that knowledge is the main factor that, uh, that drives people to share misinformation. So when people are, are uneducated about something, then that's the main factor that's going to be deciding how they behave on social media. And then there's this other school of, of thought, other body of research indicating that political affiliation is the main one. So this study obviously supports the political affiliation idea and what that indicates uh, more broadly to the problem of misinformation is that knowledge and educating people about these topics isn't enough to make the misinformation problem go away. There needs to be something more uh, to be done. And what's sometimes suspected with political affiliation being a major predictor is that people's sort of values are highly wrapped up in how, how they identify politically. And so when people's values and beliefs are all sort of wrapped up in one political label, then that's really, really difficult to get people to behave in a way that doesn't match that label, if that makes sense. So what this means is that if someone 
identifies as a Republican, they have so many values and beliefs that fall under that label that even if they have knowledge about, say, climate change, that's not going to be enough to prevent them from um, spreading misinformation. I'm curious, um, did you guys look at the, based on the sample, did you guys look at how these independent variables are correlated with each other? For example, being a Republican, um, how that's correlated with the level of knowledge they have about climate change? Um, yeah, we we did look at that. Generally, liberals had more knowledge about climate change, um, but that wasn't as well defined as the relationship between you know political affiliation and likelihood to trust, like, and share fake news. So there were these other correlations. Some mo- mostly like what what you would expect from something like this. You know, liberals are more likely to believe in climate change. Republicans are less likely to believe in climate change. But with liberals, that belief or that knowledge about climate change was like guiding their behavior uh, when it came to fake news on social media. And for Republicans, it was not. I'm curious too, like for the samples that were identified as independent, what did that data look like? Um, <laughs> the data for moderates was uh, really unconclusive. Um, It it was honestly kind of all over the place. We had a number of graphs that just displayed for a a pattern for liberals and then a pattern for conservatives. Like, for example, um, for for people who identify as liberal, as knowledge increases, likelihood to share fake news decreases. Um, And then for moderates, that clear like picture just sort of went away. There were some analyses where moderates and conservatives behaved very similarly. And so mostly for fake news, moderates and conservatives were more or less the same with moderates being slightly less likely to trust, like, and share. Um, But a lot of the analyses were were very confusing and kind of difficult to explain when it came to people who weren't liberals and weren't conservatives. Would you suspect any reason where someone would not be truthful when when revealing their political affiliation. For example, maybe they identify with one side and given the survey, they they want to um, kind of just say that they're moderate or independent. And that might lead to the confusion you talked about where there's not a clear pattern. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely always a possibility with stuff like this. Um, I found one study when I was writing my literature review that indicated that people's self-reported measures of political affiliation aren't always accurate to like their actual beliefs. So that's, that's not a case of like lying explicitly about your party affiliation. That's more just not like having your personal beliefs line up with your external political beliefs. Um, What that study actually said was that people tended to think, people tended to label themselves as more conservative than they actually were. So they had people self-report their political affiliation, and then they had people take like a political ideology quiz or something that actually, without any labels, looked at um, specific policies. And people tend to be more liberal when looking at actual policies um, than when they are just identifying their political affiliation in a label. So I I think that 
could potentially impact how um, how the the data analyses turned out. Yeah, and I think it also just is probably the result of like a two party system, especially one that's really divided at the time. And people wanting to I don't feel like they're a part of something. The moderate space is kind of like all over the place. So I don't know, maybe people just want to find a place of belonging, but then looking at their actual beliefs, I think things are often more nuanced yeah. than we think they are, which is interesting. I am curious too, like how did you, one, like find your interest in the intersection of psychology and I don't know, environmental action? And how did you become involved with the research? Well, when I first started college like I applied as a psych as a psychology major um I've been interested in psychology for a really long time and like I took AP psych in high school so I knew pretty early on that I wanted to do something with psychology in in college um and then my freshman year I took uh introduction to environmental science and because I did have like interests in the environment but not really like in an academic way um and once I started taking more environmental classes, I uh, switched to a double major to be psychology and environmental studies. Um, and here at USC, there's a great environmental studies department, which is not not every school has has that. Um, so USC is kind of special in that way that they do have a focus on environmental studies, which is different from environmental science. Um, that looks more at like, you know, policy and like the human side of environmental issues. And so as a psych and environmental studies double major there, I do have this interest in like how people interact with their environment, how environmental issues impact like people and, you know, personal relationships and mental health and stuff like that. As a a junior, I was invited to join the psychology honors program, um, which I ended up doing. And part of the requirement for that is to Um, find a professor to mentor you and to work in their lab. And I was really fortunate to find Dr. Arvai, who, you know, sort of uniquely has this intersection of psychology and environmental studies. And he's relatively new at USC. So I was very, very lucky to find him and his lab. But yeah, I, I probably wouldn't have found his lab if it weren't for the psychology honors program, because it's only graduate students except me. <laughs> um, so finding that was a bit more specific, I guess. That's awesome though, that you even like got the opportunity to do that. That's amazing. I guess for anyone listening, uh, do you have any advice then on how to get involved in undergraduate research? Maybe if it's more of a traditional path than the one you've taken, do you have any insight on that? Yeah. Um, I know that what some of my friends have done is they'll they'll talk to the professors about what research they're doing. You know, they'll talk to professors that they really liked or, you know, professors that taught classes they were really interested in. Um, and they would ask them about what research they were doing. And you can kind of get an in into a professor's lab that way. So if anyone's listening um, who wants to get involved in undergrad research, definitely use your professors. They're a great resource. And even if you're not interested in what what your professor is doing, they could definitely refer you to other people just 
you know, don't be afraid to talk to your professors. <laughs> they're, they're really cool. And 99.99% of the time, they're going to be really, really excited to talk about their research. And also USC sends like a million emails about research, uh, at least for um, psych and environmental studies. I get a lot of emails about different research opportunities. So read those carefully if that's something that you're interested in. Awesome. I'll also add to that and I think this is a good example of this, but not all environmental studies research is like hardcore bio going in, or even my, um, I think it was international relations, like they have a whole research group too that just like looks at UN data and different readings that they're doing or proposals that they come out with. So if you want to get involved with research, it doesn't have to be hardcore science and chemistry and stuff. So I would just say that as well. But um, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for appreciate it. Um, unless, Bo, you had anything else you wanted to say? No, not at the moment. Thanks for sharing. Sound the alarm. I'm Sarah. And I'm Savannah. And today we'll be covering the wildfires in Oregon and Washington. There have been warm, dry, and windy conditions that have been sweeping the Pacific Northwest, bringing some of the driest October weather conditions to the region in decades, while creating the perfect conditions for wildfires. Yeah, so there have been 16 large wildfires in Washington and six in Oregon um, as of right now, the largest of which is the Cedar Creek Fire in central Oregon. And this has burned over 120,000 acres of land so far and is about 55% contained according to the local authorities. Um, that blaze was thought to have been started by lightning strike, but many of the others have been caused by human activity. And there are also a lot of smaller fires that are several hundred acres or less. Yes, and so due to these fires, much of the region west of the Cascades has experienced extremely poor air quality, and thousands are prepared to evacuate at a moment's notice, looking at a brown sky and an orange sun. People even report feeling dizzy, and they're advised to wear N95 masks, particularly for COVID, but now to walk outside or even ride bikes. And so these conditions are unprecedented in Washington, says Suzanne Woodward, who's the spokesperson for the Washington State Department of Ecology. And now people in Oregon are even urged to stay indoors if possible and use filtered ventilation systems or air purifiers. Yeah, so unfortunately, these wildfires are becoming increasingly common, and we encourage you all to stay safe, and as always, to do your own research. So we hope we gave you a good start on today's topic, but we encourage you to dive in further and see how you can stay safe or help the situation. And also, um, you know, always think about how we uh, personally can take responsibility for our effects and for climate change. And thanks for listening. Thank you. Okay, that'll wrap up our episode for today. For more information on EcoAlarm and resources on topics covered in this episode, follow us at EcoAlarm Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you guys so much for listening. Tune in every other Friday, and we'll see you next time. Bye.